Thank you, Doug. Good morning, church. Good to be with you today. We are continuing on our sermon series, both for those of you who are here and those of you who are watching at home. Our sermon series that we've begun this fall is talking about representing, what it means to represent God, and that's the overarching question that has been guiding us through this sermon series. We've only had one week so far, but I hope that that question lingers in your mind. What does it mean to represent God? And what we find out in the pages of Scripture is that God reveals to us what it means to represent Him. He shows us what it means to represent him. Last week we started off with an incredible biblical character by the name of Abram. And Abram is a dominating character throughout the book of Genesis. From the chapter 11 all the way through to the end of Genesis is the story of Abram and his family and their call to be a blessing. Their call to represent God's love and character throughout the world. But there's a cost involved in that for Abram and it means leaving behind that which he had before. It means letting go of an identity that was very, very important to him as it would be to anybody. God calls him to step out from his identity, step out from the land that he was in, his country, the people who he represented, and even his own family name, to leave those things behind so that he could properly represent God in the world. He didn't do it perfectly. But the story of Abraham unfolds not only through his immediate family, but then his next family and and the family that follows that. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob, who would be called Israel, and then goes on to have 12 sons. And those 12 sons would become the 12 tribes of Israel. An amazing story of God's goodness at work and his call to represent him. So today we're moving on to another character. This is a character that's much smaller in scope in the Bible. His char- this character only shows up for three chapters in the book of Judges, and his name is Gideon. And I love the story of Gideon, not just because it's short, but I love the story of Gideon because it's like a hit movie. It has all of the characteristics of what you find in some of the great movies that have been put together. I'm a big fan of the Lord of the Rings movies. And in the Lord of the Rings movies, you have these these characters who wind up being heroes. They're called hobbits. They're small in stature. Nobody really expects anything out of them. They become the champions of the entire story. Well, that's kind of what the story of Gideon is about. See, Gideon lived in the land of Israel during the time of the judges. There were no kings in Israel at this time. But each of the areas and and tribes was called to bring up judges who who would help the people of Israel judge among themselves what was good and what was evil, what was right and what was wrong. And God would raise up these judges because oftentimes the people of God in Israel were doing things wrong. And as a matter of fact, we come into this story of Gideon, things have gotten so bad for Israel that there's a foreign power that has now come in to occupy the land. They've taken over. They've taken over all the crops and all of the fields, and it says that they descended like locusts, which means that they just consumed everything in their path. They've taken all of it. And here we come to find Gideon. And where do we find Gideon? We find Gideon in the basement of a wine press. And an angel of the Lord appears to Gideon and calls Gideon by name. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. 
That's what the word Gideon means. That's what his name means, mighty warrior. And Gideon says, huh? Wait a second, you're with us? Have you seen what things look like in Israel right now, Lord? Have you looked around? This doesn't look like your promise. This doesn't look like the stories that have been handed down from generation to generation, the, the stories that we have read of your power, of your, your victory, of your, your conquering the, the world on our behalf. It, none of it looks like that right now. I'm in a basement hiding out with some flour to bake some bread so nobody takes it from me. Where are you? God says, hey, the Lord is with you, and I'm going to call you to go out in the strength that you have. And in the strength that you have, I'm going to ask you to fight a battle for Israel and win the victory over her enemies. And Gideon goes, huh? Wait a second. First you're saying that you're with me, and I'm not so sure about that, but now you're saying that I'm going to be the one who's going to be the champion that's going to win this battle. Let me tell you a little bit of something about myself, God. Hey, uh, I'm from the, the family of the tribe of Manasseh, okay? We're not exactly one of the big boys, okay? We're not Judah, we're not Ephraim, we're not any of these ones that get repeated over and over again. We're, we're not of those tribes, we're Manasseh, Okay? We're kind of in the middle of all of this. We're divided by a river that goes down between us. There's nothing really to be said about Manasseh. And oh, by the way, then I'm in a little clan within Manasseh called the Abizrites. We're like the least clan in all of Manasseh. Oh, and by the way then, so, so I'm in, in the, the clan of, of Abizrites, right? That, so my dad, Joash, yeah, I'm like the least in my family. I'm like the lowest. I'm the last who gets to do anything. Which probably means he's the youngest child. I'm the baby. I know what it's like. So he's reminding God of the fact that, hey, you know, of all the people you could have picked, not me should have been your first choice. But God says, listen, I am with you. You need to come out from that hole that you're living in right now. You see, God's way of doing things is so totally different from the way that humans think. God wants to win a victory, and the first thing that he's got to do is he's got to get Gideon out of his hole, out of his place of security. Because you see, God's strength isn't found in our safety and security. It's real popular right now to, to, to think first in terms of how do I play it safe? Now, I'm not talking about living life recklessly. But when we as the people of God lead from the place of saying, hey, the first thing we want you all to do is stay safe. That's just not the way that God works. God's strength isn't found in our safety and security. So that's the first lesson that we learned from Gideon, but there's a lot more to learn because now Gideon finally does come out from under the, the hole that he's in, steps out and, and God has a first task for him to do. He says, okay, here's what I need you to do, Gideon. I need you to go into your father's yard, okay? Go to your dad's yard because there's some things in your dad's yard that I need you to destroy. 
There's an altar there built to a foreign god named Baal. And right next to that altar is a pole called the Asherah pole, which is to worship another god, a goddess called Asherah. And they're in his dad's yard. That should tell you something. These things weren't built and put together by the Midianites. They were there long before. There were already idols that had taken shape within God's people. Oh yeah, we worship Yahweh, but we also are hedging our bets a little bit by making sure that we keep Baal happy and by making sure we keep Asherah happy. We'll just kind of play all of the different things to make it work. It's called idolatry. God calls us to worship him alone. He calls his people, worship me alone, no other gods. So the first thing that he calls Gideon to do is to tear down the idols because God's strength isn't found in idols. Now, it can be easy for us in our Western modern mindset to say, oh yeah, well that's, that makes a whole lot of sense. I mean, I don't have any Baal altars in my backyard, Pastor Darren. Yeah, but there's other things that can become idols. There's a big one that Jesus talks about a lot and it tends to show up again and again in conversations, again and again in our culture and in our society. It's something that Jesus called mammon. You know what mammon is? It's money. It's when you put your trust in money. It's when you decide that the best thing that you can do is to save up enough resources for yourselves because if you've got the money, you've got the power. And if you've got the money and the power, you can rule. God doesn't find his strength in our money. He doesn't find it in the things that we put in place of him or attempt to, to show off how strong we are. God's strength isn't found in idols or in safety or security. So God continues to reveal what it means to represent him in the world to Gideon. And it starts by him tearing down these altars. And once that is accomplished, it says that God filled Gideon with his Holy Spirit. Chapter 6, verse 34 says this, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Now God's power is at work in Gideon. And Gideon has a task now. His task is to raise up an army, an army to battle the gathered armies of those who are occupying the land. And by my math and by looking through the chapters here of 6, 7, and 8, it's about 135,000 soldiers that have gathered to face off against Gideon. There's 135,000 soldiers it says they were in a valley, and it looked like the valley was, was covered. The, the camels looked like locusts. That's how big this army was. So Gideon is called to go raise up an army to do battle. And Gideon, the mighty warrior, goes out and gets 25,000. 25,000 against 135,000. I might not be the best at math, but that's somewhere between four and five to one odds. It's not the way that any army would go out expecting to have victory. But that's okay because God has a plan. And God talks to Gideon and says, Gideon, here's what we're going to do. 
We're going to make your army smaller. 25,000 is too many. It's too many, Gideon. So here's what I'd like you to do. Gather those 25,000 together and ask them this question. Who's afraid? (laughs) There's a great question to ask, right? You've already got one to five odds. So let's ask those who are standing there among you, staring at 135,000, who are you afraid? If you're afraid, you can go home. It's not quite like the great battle scenes that you see in, in so many of the movies where it's like, hey, we're strong, but we're all together, and this is not the day, not today. Today is not the day where our strength fails. No, Gideon looks at them and says, who is with me? And 22,000 of the 25,000 say, I'm out of here. 3,000 are left. So the odds have now gone from 5 to 1 to 45 to 1. And God says, still too many. Still too many. I want you to thin them out a little bit more. Bring them down to the water. And those who who kneel down like this and just take up a little bit of the water into their hand and, and lap it from their hand, separate those from the ones who get down on all fours and drink out of the pond just by sucking the water right out. Divide them up. Well, 2,700 of them just get down on their hands and knees and start sucking the water right out of the pond. And only 300 of them get down on one knee with their head still up and drink the water from their hands. And God says, those are the 300 I want you to keep. Send the other 2,700 home. The odds are now 450 to 1. But it's not about numbers. Because you see, God's strength can't be found in numbers either. I look around this room and there aren't as many people here as there were six months ago. I know there are many who are watching online. I'm so glad that you are. I'm so glad that you're with us and we are with you. But the reality of it is I have no idea if or when we're going to see the same kind of numbers we saw before. But our victory doesn't depend on our numbers. It depends on God's strength and God's power at work within our weakness. And God has one more trick up his sleeve with Gideon. Gideon, you got 300 guys to go out and win this war. And here's the kind of military hardware that you're going to use to conquer 135,000 men armed with swords and spears and shields. You're going to go out there with trumpets and torches in jars of clay. Those are the weapons that God asks Gideon to use and that Gideon asks his army to use. This doesn't seem to make any sense. Why wouldn't you at least pick up a sword to go to battle? Instead, you're going to do a battle with a trumpet and with a a torch in a jar of clay? None of this makes any sense in human terms, but it all makes sense to God. God calls Gideon mighty warrior, which is what his name means. But Gideon can also have another meaning. There's another meaning. And I'm not sure whether this is absolutely applicable to Gideon, but you should know that there is another meaning for the word and term Gideon. It means somebody who has a stump for a hand. 
Now, I don't know if this specifically applies to Gideon, but it might. And if it does, it might explain a little bit of why he's going to battle with a trumpet and a torch. Because Gideon can't hold a sword. He can't hold the human tool that would be used to win this victory. So not only does he stand up and not pick up a sword himself, he takes the 300 who are with him and says, we're all going to fight the same way because God's going to win this victory. And that's exactly what God does. God wins this crazy victory through this nobody named Gideon and does it in the most miraculous of ways because God's strength isn't found in playing it safe. God's strength isn't found in worshiping idols. God's strength isn't found in numbers. Do you know how God chooses to show his strength? In our weakness. That's where God chooses to show his strength. He chooses to reveal his strength in human weakness. Your weakness is where God shows his strength. And this goes counterintuitive to everything that we think when we think about leading, when we think about being in God's army. We've gotten wrapped up in the mentality that the, that the way that we're going to win as the church in the world is when we finally get strong enough, have enough of us, and we just take over. That's not the way God works. Because it's not the way that God worked through Jesus. Jesus didn't come as a warrior with a sword in his hand. He didn't come as a conquering king. He didn't come with any position or power. He didn't come with any wealth or security. He came from Nazareth, a place where everybody said, what good can possibly come from there? He was born in Bethlehem, in a manger where there wasn't enough room for him with his family. He was nobody. Yet he changed the world. And how did he change the world? And how did he change the world for you and for me? Through the ultimate act of human weakness. He sacrificed himself and died. A humiliating death on a cross. Because that's how God chooses to show his ultimate glory and strength. Is on a cross. That's the image that is given for you and for me of what God's strength looks like, what God's power and glory look like. It looks like the Son of Man hanging on a cross, dying in our place, accepting our brokenness and our humanity to reveal God's love. Your weakness is where God shows his strength. Your brokenness is where God shows his holiness and healing. Your sinfulness is where God shows his forgiveness. And on the cross is where God shows his glory. If you relate to the story of Gideon, like I do, it's time to come out of hiding. 
It's time to stop hiding your weaknesses behind your strengths to prove something to someone. Instead, it's time for us to step out as God's people, filled with his power, given his strength. As the broken, sinful people we are, we humbly come before God. Say, God, I know I'm broken. I know I don't have what it takes in myself. I know I don't have all the resources that other people have. Lord, I'm a broken sinner. Use me. Use me. And when we take that attitude before the Lord, God will work miracles. And nobody else will get the credit except God. See, that's the beauty of how God chooses to work through us. He works through us, broken vessels and all. He works through these jars of clay that are broken and leaky. And through those jars of clay, he chooses to change the world. Not from the top down through power and through overwhelming numbers, but through a small group who humbly acknowledge their weakness and their brokenness before the Lord. Say, God, just use us. Let us be the tools in your hand, as weak as we might be. In those places, God reveals his glory and his love and his ultimate victory on the cross. New life for you and for me. The Apostle Paul took God at his word when he said he's got a thorn in his side that he asked God to remove. We don't know what that thorn was, but whatever it was, Paul was insistent that this had to be taken out of the way in order for him to be strong for God. God said, that's not the way this works, Paul. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My favor is enough to cover you and enough to get the job done. And my strength is perfectly revealed in your weakness. When you're willing to admit that you don't have it all together, when you're willing to recognize that the world isn't looking for God's people to rise up in their own strength and take over, the world is desperately looking for something other than human strength. The world needs to see the strength of God revealed in broken people that anybody can be used by God to accomplish his purposes in the world. If they will lay down their swords, if they'll lay down their power, if they'll give up their comfort, if they'll give up their safety, if they'll let go of the resources that they cling to so tightly, if they will do that, then God is able to work miracles. My grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in weakness. So how do we get started on this? There's a phrase I like to share, and I've shared it since I got here, and I share it with my staff with some regularity, and it's this. 
we take God very seriously so that we don't take ourselves so seriously. Too often we get that flipped around. We think that it all depends on us and our strength and our ability to seriously bear down. God is the one who accomplishes his purposes. We should take God's word very seriously. We should take his instruction very seriously. We should believe and trust in Jesus with everything that we have. Because then when people look at us as the broken people we are, we can say, it's not about us. It's not about me. I'm just trying to get through life like you are, but I know the one who has come to rescue me. I know the one who has come to show his love for me, and it's the same God who shows his love for broken people like me that wants to show his, broken, his love to broken people like you. That's the heart of the mighty warriors that God wants to raise up. Mighty warriors who are jars of clay, leaky and fragile, prone to being broken, so that God can reveal his holiness and his wholeness through us. Let's take that journey together. Let's be willing to acknowledge where it is we don't have it all together. Let's be willing to humble ourselves, seek God, and allow his power to work through us, a power that will always draw people to Jesus and not to us. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have called us as your children, and you know us completely, just like you knew Gideon. Lord, we are weak, so we need you to be strong. We are broken, so we need you to heal. We are sinners, Lord, and we ask for your forgiveness. We are people who see you, Jesus, high and lifted up, first on the cross. Father, give us the grace that we need, the grace that you promised to Paul in his weakness, because it's enough. It's enough for us. It was enough for Gideon. And then, Lord, help us when you do work through us to not make the mistake like Gideon did of letting the attention come to him, of ultimately deciding He deserves some credit. Lord, we don't want any of the credit. We want all the credit and glory to go to you. Use us. Use Community of Grace Lutheran Church, broken just as we are, to accomplish your victory. Help us to represent you well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.